This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. The world loves Henry VIII. It is time to hear from his victims. Henry VIII is getting a historical makeover. For centuries, the English king was most often a figure of ridicule. The only thing that most people knew about him pertained to his deplorable marital history. However, some historians are reconsidering his role in English history, looking at him in a far more favorable light. They paint him as a figure who made England stronger abroad and more unified at home. Even his horrible record as a husband is explained away as necessary to maintain the Tudor dynasty and stabilize England by providing a male heir. There is another interesting and ironic facet to Henry's rehabilitation. Some try to present him as a pioneer of the modern era of separating the church from the state. For the woke historians, the Catholic Church is high on the list of oppressors. Therefore, they are quite willing to praise a tyrant as long as he fought against the church. This episode of the Return to Order moment looks at Henry VIII from a different vantage point, that of his victims. Specifically, we look at two of those victims, both better men than Henry. They are, in fact, both saints, St. Thomas More and St. John Fisher. Mr. Plinio Maria Salameo draws a fascinating parallel between the virtue of St. Thomas More and the modern pro-life movement in his essay, Awesome Saint Inspires Heroism and Anti-Abortion Fight. It is astonishing and difficult to understand how a mother can cruelly murder through abortion the child she has conceived. In so doing, she stifles the first and most tangible affection bond between two beings, maternal love, which is present even among irrational animals. Also difficult to understand is how healthcare professionals are willing to cooperate with this odious crime, a willful murder, which is a sin that, quote, rises to heaven and cries out to God for vengeance, as the Catechism of St. Pius X teaches. On maternal love, the prophet Isaiah, chapter 49, verse 15, says, Can a woman forget her infant so as not to have pity on the son of her womb? This forgetting happens with procured abortion. A crucial part of the debate involves many politicians who call themselves Catholic and yet go along with abortion to be politically correct. They claim they must represent all their voters rather than vote according to their personal beliefs. Two high-ranking Democratic Party members, President Joe Biden and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, present themselves as practicing Catholics yet support abortion, thus defying church teaching. Journalist John Davis refutes this conflicting claim in an interesting article in the Seattle Catholics. He cites St. Thomas More as an example of the consistency politicians should have between politics and faith. More was England's great chancellor at the time of the lustful King Henry VIII. Who was this saint who preferred martyrdom over violating church laws in the face of royal power? Briefly, St. Thomas was born in 1478 on the outskirts of London. At just 13 years old, he took a job as a messenger for the Archbishop of Canterbury. 
Noticing his remarkable intelligence, the prelate financed his studies at the University of Oxford, where Thomas obtained a law doctorate at age 22. He thought about entering religion, but later chose the path of marriage. He had four children. With a strong avocation for politics and literature, Sir Thomas More held several politicians as a man of law. He gradually became known for his fine intelligence, honesty, integrity, and above all, his great faith and charity, balanced by a keen sense of humor. These qualities made him much loved and famous. This fame led Henry VIII to choose him for the kingdom's most important post, Lord Chancellor, which he held from 1529 to 1532, the year of his death. John Davis writes, As a member of the King's Council in 1527, Moore faced his own moral dilemma. King Henry VIII desperately wanted the highly regarded Sir Thomas's support for his appeal to the Pope to grant him a divorce from Catherine of Aragon so he could marry his mistress Anne Boleyn. A fervent Catholic, Moore refused to give his support based on the Church's teaching of the indissolubility of marriage, Unquote. Mr. Davis cites the 1966 movie, A Man for All Seasons, in which Sir Thomas, played by Paul Schofield, is drilled by Cardinal Wolsey, played by Orson Welles, regarding his lack of support for the king's divorce. Quote, Explain how you, as a counselor of England, can obstruct these measures for the sake of your own private conscience. Moore replies to Wolsey point blank. I think that when statesmen forsake their own private conscience for the sake of their public duties, they lead their country by a short route to chaos. Unquote. Sir Thomas More was found guilty of high treason for opposing the king's wishes. He was imprisoned in the Tower of London and beheaded on July 6, 1535. He refused to recognize the king as the self-proclaimed supreme head of the church in England. At the moment of his death, the martyr declared, Be my witness that I die in and for the faith of the church of Rome. I die the king's good servant, but God's first. Pray to God that he may enlighten and advise the king. Unquote. Given his death in defense of the faith, Pope Leo XIII declared Sir Thomas More a martyr and beatified him in 1886. On May 9, 1935, Pius XI canonized him with St. John Fisher, also considered a martyr. On October 31, 2000, John Paul II proclaimed St. Thomas More, quote, patron of government officials and politicians, unquote. In his apostolic letter on that occasion, John Paul II highlighted the need for a patron saint when, quote, scientific achievements in the area of biotechnology underline the needs to defend human life at all its different stages. He adds that St. Thomas More provides such a model. Wherever men or women heed the call of truth, their conscience then guides their actions reliably toward good. Because of the witness he bore, even at the price of his life, 
To the primacy of truth over power, St. Thomas More is venerated as an imperishable example of moral integrity. And even outside the Church, particularly among those responsible for the destinies of peoples, he is acknowledged as a source of inspiration for a political system which has as its supreme goal the service of the human person. Unquote. Applying this doctrine to present-day politicians, John Davis writes, Clearly, these Catholic politicians have elevated the goal of getting elected above their solemn duty to defend the faith and the most vulnerable in society. The Catechism of the Catholic Church states, God, the Lord of life, has entrusted to men the noble mission of safeguarding life, and men must carry it out in a manner worthy of themselves. Life must be protected with the utmost care from the moment of conception. Abortion and infanticide are abominable crimes. We do not often get a chance to hear from a saint in his own words. However, during St. Thomas More's long imprisonment, he wrote a remarkable meditation on the Passion of Our Lord. He beautifully considers the idea that Our Lord being both true God and true man, suffered pain as to be an example for martyrs to come. St. Thomas More's Latin was translated into English in 1557. In 2009, the TFP published excerpts under the title, My Soul is Heavy Even to Death. In this reading, we retain the medieval English of the translation, in which our Lord's sufferings are so poignantly described. For the blessed and tender heart of our Most Holy Savior was cumbered and panged with manifold and hideous griefs, since doubtless well wist he that the false traitor and his mortal enemies drew near unto him, and were now in manner already come upon him, and over this that he should be despitefully bounden and have heinous crimes surmised against him, be blasphemed, scourged, crowned with thorns, nailed, crucified, and finally suffer very long and cruel torments. Moreover, much did it disquiet him, that he foresaw the fear and dread which his disciples should fall in, the mischief that should light on the Jews, the destruction of the false traitor Judas, and last of all, the unspeakable sorrow of his dear beloved mother. The storms and heaps of so many troubles coming upon him all at once, as doth the main sea when it violently breaketh down the banks over the land, sore oppressed his most holy and blessed heart. Some man may haply here marvel how this could be, that our Savior Christ, being very God equal with his Almighty Father, could be heavy, sad, and sorrowful. Indeed, he could not have been so, if as he was God, so had he been only God, and not man also. But now seeing he was as verily man as he was verily God, I think it no more to be marveled that inasmuch as he was man, he had these affections and conditions in him such I mean as be without offense to God, as of common course are in mankind, 
than that inasmuch as he was God, he wrought so wonderful miracles. For if we do marvel that Christ should have in him fear, weariness, and sorrow, namely seeing that he was God, then why should we not as well marvel that he was hungry, athirst, and slept? Since albeit he had these properties, yet was he nonetheless God for all that? But hereunto, peradventure, mayst thou reply and say, Albeit, I do now marvel no more that he could do so, yet can I not but marvel why he would do so? For what reason is it that he which taught his disciples in no wise to fear those that could but kill only their bodies, and when that was done, no further thing in their power wherewith they could do them harm, should now wax afraid of them himself, namely, since against his blessed body they could no more do so than it liked his holy majesty to permit and suffer them. Over this seeing, hereof we be well assured, that his martyrs joyfully and courageously hasted them toward their death, not hesitating even then boldly to rebuke and reprove the tyrants and their cruel tormentors, how unseemly might it be thought that Christ himself being, as a man might say, the chief banner-bearer and captain of all martyrs, should, when he drew near to his passion, be so sore afraid, so heavy, so wonderfully unquieted and troubled. Had it not been meet that he which did all things himself before he taught the same, should in this point, especially in his own person, have given other men example to learn of him, for the truth's sake cheerfully to suffer death, lest such as in the time to come would be loath and afraid to die for the defense of the faith, might happily to excuse their own faint and feeble hearts, bear themselves in hand, that they did none otherwise therein than Christ had done before them, and doing Yet should they both not a little dishonor so good and worthy a master, and besides that much discourage other folk to see them in so great fear and heaviness. St. Thomas More lived in a world of government. His contemporary, St. John Fisher, was a priest and bishop. Alone of all English bishops, he resisted Henry VIII's treason against Holy Mother Church, that decision would cost him his life. The founder of the international TFP movement, Professor Plenio Correa de Oliveira, described the life and importance of St. John Fisher in the essay. St. John Fisher teaches to have vigilance and serenity in the face of death. This essay is taken from an informal lecture that Professor Correa de Oliveira gave on June 21, 1967. It has been translated and adapted for publication without his revision. On June 22nd, the Church celebrates the memory of St. John Fisher and St. Thomas More, both martyred in England for refusing to join Henry VIII's revolt against the papacy. We will begin with a narration of the saint's life and especially his death that follows. Before he was appointed Bishop of Rochester, St. John Fisher had been chaplain to Henry VII's mother and the Chancellor of Cambridge University. He opposed the divorce of Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon. 
He rejected the establishment of the Church of England by refusing to take the oath required of the English bishops recognizing the king as head of the church in England. Thus, he was arrested and imprisoned in the Tower of London. In May 1535, during his imprisonment, he was created a cardinal by Pope Paul III. St. John Fisher was sentenced to die by torture, but his sentence was commuted to beheading due to his deplorable state of health. In the early hours of June 22nd, the tower officer met the prisoner in his cell and reminded him that he was old, unable to bear the prison regime for long. Then he announced the king's decision that the execution takes place that very morning. All right, replied the saint. If that's the message you bring, it's nothing new to me. I waited for it every day. What time is it? About five. What time is my departure from this world scheduled? At ten. Then I would thank you if you would allow me to sleep another hour or two, as I didn't sleep much last night, not out of fear, but because of my illness and great weakness. When the officer returned at nine o'clock, he found Fisher ready and dressed. The holy bishop took the New Testament and read with great consolation these words of St. John. Now this is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I have gloried thee on earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now glorify thou me, O Father, with thyself, with the glory which I had before the world was with thee. Then he asked to be given his fur-lined robe, to which the officer questioned him. But my lord, why should you take such care of your health if your time is up and you have little more than an hour to live? I ask for my cloak to keep me warm until the moment of execution. For even though I do not lack the courage to die a holy death, I still don't want to jeopardize my health, even for a moment. He walked towards the scaffold, straightening his body, which was so thin and gaunt that it looked like death had taken a human form. On the platform, in an intelligible and clear voice, he asked those watching the execution to pray for him. Quote, Until now, I have never been afraid of death. However, I am flesh, and St. Peter, fearing for his flesh, denied the Lord three times. Help me, therefore, that at the precise moment that I receive the mortal blow, I do not give in through weakness on any point of the Catholic religion. Unquote. In place of the ordeal, he was offered pardon several times, if only he would say what they asked of him. But he was unshakable. After the execution, his body was exposed naked throughout the day. His head, stuck in a spear, was placed on the London Bridge. Fifteen days later, as it still looked alive and people began to believe in a miracle, they threw it into the Thames. Thus ends the narration. Here we see the reactions of a great prelate on the eve of his martyrdom. 
He does not hide his fears in the face of death. I believe that no man can say he does not fear death without the assistance of grace. For death in itself is a punishment that God inflicts on men for original sin. Therefore, it naturally instills fear. We cannot imagine the suffering caused by the definitive separation of the soul from the body at the time of death. We can suppose it is a profound, more or less unimaginable pain. If the slightest twisting of the body's tiniest bone can be very painful, then the pain must be very great at the time of the laceration caused by the soul gradually losing its influence and completely abandoning the flesh. Thus, a blunt appraisal of death causes a person to be afraid at the supreme moment of facing it. The act of dying is only part of the suffering. Any reasonable person who has witnessed death can see other, more profound reasons for fearing it connected to the person's spiritual state. I remember, for example, watching my father during his agony and making this reflection. There he is, between eternity and the earth. He has completely lost consciousness of everything. External facts no longer touch him. However, in the back of his mind, he might be facing other things. What forms of fear, temptation, and trial is he enduring? What consolations, joys, or help can a soul like this also feel at this moment? Indeed, such circumstances, fraught with uncertainties, should cause fear in man. Returning to St. John Fisher's example, let us consider how admirably this saint practiced the virtue of vigilance and self-examination. After receiving the news of his death with all serenity, he then asked for two more hours of sleep. This petition shows extraordinary unconcern at his imminent departure from this world. I didn't sleep well last night. I'm tired. Let me rest a little longer. He sleeps in the peace of his soul because he is ready to appear before God. He places himself into God's arms and rests until it is time to lie down for eternal rest. This is an impressive manifestation of a clean conscience and the supernatural help that enabled him to possess such tranquility in the last hours of his life. After resting, he arises gets ready and calmly presents himself to the officer who comes for him. At the scaffold, he felt that his human weakness could get the upper hand. He was afraid of becoming afraid. The saint did not want to lose his magnificent state of soul in the face of death. Thus, he asked those present to pray for him. How appropriate it was for him to distrust himself. There, on the scaffold, his tormentors insisted on perverting him and making him deny the Catholic faith. Their last-minute harassment had a purpose. They know that it would be a triumph for the Anglican cause if he accepted their heretical proposals. Nothing is more seductive than choosing between saying yes or dying. If the saint accepted the offers, he would leave that scaffold surrounded by honor and applause. He would sleep that night comfortably in some palace and have a few years of pampered life ahead of him. However, St. John Fisher feared his fear. 
He feared a temptation from the devil at that time. He recognized that he might fall. Thus, practicing the virtue of vigilance as recommended by the Divine Master, he asked for others to pray on his behalf. Above all, he must have begged for the intercession of Mary Most Holy at the throne of our Lord Jesus Christ. He remained unshakable in his faith, was beheaded, and received the crown of martyrdom. He serves as a model for us Catholics on how to face the moment of our deaths. Let us have that spirit of vigilance and humility that St. John Fisher manifested. Let us never imagine that, being devotees of Mary Most Holy, who practice good works of the Apostolate, we will not be tempted or weakened at the last minute. We must therefore ask for the grace to be vigilant about ourselves. Let us seek the grace always to resist temptations, realizing that the spirit may be ready, but the flesh is weak. Let us especially ask Our Lady to assist us with her mercy when we leave this world for eternity. As the Holy Church recommends, we must implore the grace of a good death as we do not know what can happen to us in the last moments of our lives. Such considerations should not cause panic or unwholesome terror. On the contrary, when people confide in Our Lady and through her in Our Lord, they understand how terrible death is, but move toward it serenely. However, I must often ask for trust in God and supernatural help from heaven, which is the only remedy to avoid the unhealthy terror of death. We should take to heart these precious lessons from the example of St. John Fisher, Cardinal and Martyr of the Holy Roman Catholic and Apostolic Church. This concludes, The World Loves Henry VIII. It is time to hear from his victims. Thank you so much for listening. Return to Order, of which this podcast is only a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. If you have enjoyed this podcast, we ask you to subscribe and give us a five-star rating with the service through which you are listening to it. Increased subscriptions and high ratings mean that more people will be directed to the Return to Order moment when searching for new podcasts. So, by rating us, you can help Return to Order be more effective. In addition, subscribers gain access to all the previous episodes of the Return to Order moment. We would also like to recommend the book which spells out the motivations behind our work. Mr. John Horvat's book, Return to Order, is available as a free download through our website, www.returntoorder.org, or in printed and recorded form through our bookstore. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2022 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property, TFP.